to 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, we're continuing the series, Standing in the Gap. Some of you are likely not to be very happy with me today because we're starting a, it's, this is sort of a two-part sermon within the series. I was hoping to get this whole thing done today, but I just couldn't do it. So we're going to look at part of it, and I want to give you a little bit of an encouragement slash disclaimer slash warning. Um, you're going to need to keep one eye in the Bible, in your, in your copy of the Bible, and your other eye up on the screen behind me. If you have amblyopia, you're going to be fine. If you don't, you might struggle a little bit this morning, you're probably going to have a headache. But we need to look both at the context where I'm going to take you all through Scripture as well as the very literal words that are recorded for us in 1 Kings 18. This is a different, a little bit different sermon than maybe you're used to from me. Try to be very, very applicable, very pragmatic, very practical. And while I think there is that in here, and I hope it will come even more when we pick this up. By the way, the second part of this little two-parter within the series doesn't occur till January 8th weekend. So um, it would be a little hard to talk about Elijah's slaughtering prophets on the eve of Christmas. So I've kind of had to suspend that because of the timing. But if you'd like to hear about that, come see me and we can talk about it Christmas morning in a phone call. And I'll pray for your soul. But if uh, you're here January 8th, you're going to hear the second one, which I hope you're here because this one without that one is incomplete. But we're going to get into some theology this morning. And I know some of you that's a yawner. Some of you are like, okay, it's too cold to have come out here to listen to this. I think you're going to be encouraged. You definitely need to know what we're going to preach about today. If you are a Christ follower without the knowledge of what you're hearing today, if it's not deeply embedded and anchored into your mind, you're not going to be able to live the Christian life successfully. All right, well, that was a little bit audacious. We'll see if that's true. Vanderbilt University built its all-faith chapel dedicated to Hindus, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, the Baha'i, the Orthodox Christian Fellowship, dedicated to every religion. There aren't any religious symbols in this chapel. I want you to picture this. You don't drive up to this chapel and see any symbols. Instead, there's cupboards. In the Muslim cupboard, students can get their prayer rugs. In the Jewish cupboard, their menorah, their Star of David. In the Christian cupboard, you can get a cross out and, and take some Bibles, etc. All, all of these are there. They're hidden away into each cupboard that represents that religion. At the dedication ceremony at Vanderbilt University, when they dedicated this chapel, Chaplain Beverly Asbury, here's what she said. This place is for every faith. Its dedication consists of many acts and of one. There is diversity in our unity and there is unity in our diversity as we dedicate this space and add to its light, each in the way of distinctive tradition. As we're going to see today, and as we have got to have been seeing in this series, God really, now listen, He's really not inclusive, meaning God won't pull up to the dinner table with other religions and enjoy a meal. He's exclusive. If you don't see that in Scripture, friends, you honestly aren't reading the same Bible. He's inclusive. He's not, rather. He's not inclusive. He's exclusive. Will we, his servants, who carry his message, will we represent that to those who don't believe what we believe? and are hostile to the Christian message? Do we have the confidence and the courage to draw people, to ask people to make a decision regarding God? Elijah did, and we saw last week that his unparalleled courage, here he is, he's toe-to-toe, -to -toe, 
face to face with the most powerful man in Israel who is blaming him for all of the three and a half years of trouble from the drought, who is saying a death sentence, giving a death sentence to Elijah. You're the troubler. You're the Achan of Israel. And Elijah displays unparalleled courage because he had such incredible confidence in his God. And he told Ahab, bring all Israel, bring the false prophets of Baal and Asherah, bring them to meet with me on Mount Carmel, and Ahab did. Extraordinary that the king would take an order from the prophet that he hated. It's the power of God. And look at your Bibles with me, if you would. 1 Kings 18, 20, here's what it says. Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. He sent his delegates all over the nation, the, uh, the northern kingdom, and he gathered the prophets, 850 of them, although the text only mentions the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He gathers the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel, if you look behind me on that map, it's located in the northwest region corner of Israel. It's right along the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 1,700 feet high. We've got a lot of people in our church that have actually been there. It's beautiful. It's 30 miles west or so of the Sea of Galilee. If you need a place to stick in your mind, you know the Sea of Galilee. We just preached all about it, that sermon on Jesus series. It's more a mountain range. It's got three peaks, but it's more a mountain range. In fact, one Jewish scholar said there's no spot in all of Palestine more beautiful than Mount Carmel. Its name, the name Carmel, means fruitful garden. It's beautiful. It's lush. It ends in a promontory, a bluff 500 feet high that overlooks right up against the Mediterranean Sea, the blue water. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's located, look at that map, or if it's still there, it's located right at the southern edge of Phoenicia. Phoenicia is where Queen Jezebel came from. Tyre and Sidon, her father Ethbaal was on the throne. You've got Phoenicia, you've got Israel. And Carmel is located right on the border. It was a great place, a well-used place to worship Baal. And Elijah chose it purposefully. Now listen, this is really interesting because if you wanted to, you could flip back to chapter 16, verse 32, and you'll see that Ahab built a house. He built a temple for Baal, and it was right in Samaria. Elijah didn't call them to Samaria because you couldn't fit the thousands of Israelites who he wanted to witness this event. You couldn't fit them in that house. So he invites them to where Baal was worshipped, right up on Mount Carmel. He gives every possible advantage to Baal. It's home field advantage for Baal. The altar of God's in ruins. The altar to Baal is well used. And look at verse 21. They gather on the slopes of that mountain and Elijah speaks to the people. And here, if I were to tell you what the thesis what the center, what the axis of this sermon is, well, here it is. It's right on this, and we're going to pretty soon see that this same question is being asked to Cornerstone. Here it is, so you, got, you want to listen. How long, Elijah asks, will you go limping between two different opinions? Now, we don't really use this language. If you have King James, how long will you halt? We don't really talk like this. The word limping has a very evocative imagery. It's a word that describes a bird that hops and skips from branch to branch until it finds one to finally settle down. The word limping means to hop, leap, or pass over. If you remember the Exodus account when the Israelites were still in Egypt and God sends well, the Lord comes and he goes house to house 
And if the blood's not covering the doorposts and down the lintels of the doorway, then the Lord struck dead the firstborn in that home. Well, when he came to a home that had the blood, he leaped over that home to the next one. It's the same word. Limping means Passover. You're going to see it again in a little while as the prophets of Baal ecstatically limp and dance and jerk their way around the altar of Baal and worship. You see, what Elijah is saying, and friends, this is why we need to understand this, because I'm about to ask you some pretty important questions. What Elijah is saying is to the people, how long, how long will you hop back and forth between your allegiance to God and your allegiance to Baal? And here's the fundamental problem. Friends, you want to know why God brought this drought? It really wasn't all about King Ahab. Elijah's not even talking to Ahab. He never does on the mountain until after the contest is over. He's speaking to the people. He's not speaking to the prophets of Baal. He's not speaking to the prophets of Asherah. They're pagan. They're unbelievers. He's speaking to God's people, and he asks them, how long are you going to waver? It's the fundamental problem. It's why the the drought was there. God is disciplining Israel. They're double-minded. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that the epistle of James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He will be like a boat driven by the wind-whipped waves. And they'd been this way for a long time. That's what he, why he says, how long? It's been 600 years God brought Israel out of Egypt and they continually were wayward. They were continually willful. They would vacillate between their devotion to Yahweh and Elohim. And then all of a sudden they would swing over to one of the gods and the nations that they were traveling through. They've had a divided mind, which is what double-minded means, for over 600 years. God told them in Exodus 20, verse 3, when he gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Yet repeatedly they ran after the gods of the nations all around them. Now, it's so easy to leave this in antiquity. And to go, wow, I never really knew that's what limping meant. Oh, it's the same as the Passover word. It's easy to do that. Believe me, I do this pretty well. But the Lord won't let you do that. And if I'm going to be a preacher of God's word, I can't let you do that either. I've got to put all of us before the mirror of God's word and let it illuminate the truth. What is the condition of your heart? Are you double-minded Do you limp back and forth between following Christ and following the world? I mean, you walk out of here on Sundays. Aren't you like me? Lord, I just want to live for you. I just want my life to stay on that altar. And by Tuesday, maybe if it lasts that long, we're right back pursuing the world. Does money have a hold on your life more than God? Listen, I don't know your heart. You've got to ask these questions. Some people sell their souls to the corporate ladder. They've got to climb it. They've got to have success. It's their idol that they're worshiping. Others are pursuing luxuries. They're craving beauty. They want power. They're on the internet looking at porn. This is a divided heart. You call yourself a Christian, yet you're pursuing God's substitutes. That big home, that clean home that you've got to have or you can't have peace. All of these are God's substitutes. There's nothing, friends. Listen, if you're not getting anything else out of this sermon so far, at least get this. Our hearts can make any created thing an idol. Anything. Literally nothing in creation is off limits to our idol-making hearts. And the bales of this world are all around us. They're as familiar inside the church as they are outside of it. Divided allegiance 
to God. Double-mindedness, it's nothing new. Friends, listen, be honest. This has always plagued God's people. This is why Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He's saying, stop being double-minded. Choose a side. If you're on God's side, then get off of that side of the line and get over here and serve and live and be faithful. Joshua said the same thing in different words. Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus says this to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what double-mindedness is. You go back and forth. Elijah puts it this way. If the Lord is God, look at your text, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, then listen. Just follow him. Choose a side. You're either all in or you're all out. You cannot play the middle. Now, a woman once said, I heard her say, of her willingness to put up with her husband's continual marital unfaithfulness. She said this, I'd rather have some of him than none of him. Listen, God will never say that. God says, I purchased you. You are all mine. I bought you with my blood. You're my people. I've loved you. You are to love me and you're to serve me with all of who you are. I will not put up with double-mindedness. God will not settle for part of our allegiance. Now, Remember how I keep telling you Elijah is a man like us with a nature like ours? Remember I keep saying that to you? James says that. That's a quote from James. I am just like you. I'm pretty sure that most of us, pretty sure that all of us struggle with double-mindedness. And what I'm going to tell you from about this point in the sermon forward is what God says about double-mindedness and how he interrupts it and he has the solution for it. And I'm going to challenge you to at least be honest. I had a lot of people come to me last night after the message admitting they really struggle with this. I think a lot of us do. God will not settle for part of our allegiance. And when we believe the lie that God isn't really that concerned with double-mindedness. Listen, he will bring to you a bold Elijah to bring you back. And sometimes that Elijah could be a friend. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes a counselor. It could be a song or it could be a book. It could be a verse of scripture. It could be a job loss, a marriage crisis. Even an Elijah could be a heart attack or a stroke. And it is God who has said, I will not settle for part of your heart. Here's my Elijah to turn you back to me. And friends, God has more Elijahs than we have idols. And these servants of God speak for him right into your heart and they will turn you away from your idol and they will turn you back to your jealous God. If you are double-minded, then keep your eyes on the horizon because God's got an Elijah coming. Did you happen to notice the very next work, work, verse in our text? Notice the response of the people to Elijah's challenge, and the people did not answer him a word. Guilty. And so far, unwilling, and what I'm about to tell you, unable to repent. Which brings us to the main point of this sermon, and here it is. Ready? Get this into your minds. If you're writing it down, here's the main part of this series, or this sermon. God must do something into the hearts of his people to help us stay faithful to him. God has to do something. He has to do something in our hearts in order to help us stay faithful to him. And what he does is always the gracious work of the gospel, and it's seen all through this 
passage. Friends, listen, it's not only that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you, the gospel, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, continues to save you. If you want not to only come to Christ, but to live fully for Him, then the gospel has to stay in your heart and do its work. You cannot stray from the cross. The cross is the visible manifestation of the gospel. The cross is where Jesus died to remove the obstacles between us and God and bring reconciliation. Because rebellion is hardwired into our hearts. From birth, we inherit this from our rebellious first father, Adam. And people don't like to hear that, and I'm aware of that. But there's not a person in here that doesn't have a sin nature. David says, I was a sinner even in my mother's womb. We've all been born with a nature that wants to go our own way, and we've all proven it through immoral actions. Listen, I mean, honestly, if somebody claimed to be without sin, what would you think? None is righteous, Romans 3 says. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. When you get saved, God gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh. A new nature that wants Him. We almost hired somebody a few years ago as an associate pastor. He made it all the way to the very end of the process But he had this little doctrine that because he has a new nature and a new heart, he is able to not sin. Listen, we all still inhabit a house of flesh called our bodies, our nature, our flesh. It's not our literal skin and bones. It's still the leftover remnants of rebellion against God. And the gospel is continuing to kill it. And to move that into righteousness. And that process will not be complete this side of eternity. Even Paul, near the end of his life, was so aware of how deeply he was a sinner. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our holy God will not and cannot just wink. He can't wink at our sinfulness. He can't give us a free pass into his presence. He not only detests sin, he's utterly incompatible with it. God and sinful people, friends, cannot be together. You know, you could have gone to the temple in the Old Testament. You could have gone with a grain offering, which was a tribute, a blessing, a praise to God. But you couldn't have gone into God's presence with your grain offering without first offering a sin offering because something has to die in order to let you into God's presence so that you can bless Him. The fact that we can come to church this morning and give praises and blessings to God is only made possible because Christ's blood covers you. He's already made a way into the Father. God cannot be in fellowship with darkness. Israel has to repent on Mount Carmel. They have to turn back to God or they have no hope. But here's the problem. Now listen well. A man with no legs, no matter how much he is whipped and how much he is threatened, cannot get up and run. Israel has to repent, but their hearts are utterly unable to do it. So God must act. God must free them from their bondage to sin before they could ever pursue righteousness. And it's entirely impossible without the power of the gospel, which we're about to see. See, God makes a way for us to be released from the bondage of sin. He first releases us from the bondage of sin and then sets us free to worship him. Cheryl said that this morning during our worship. Verse 23, look at your text. Here's the gospel. It's all through here. 
Let two bulls be given to us, Elijah says. He's laying out the pre-fight instructions. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Now, friends, listen, they didn't run down 30 miles away to the local butcher shop and get a pack of steaks. They took a live bull, two of them, killed them. Now listen, took a bull and put it under its slashed neck as its heart pumped its blood out of its body, collected it in the bowl so that the prophets, the priests of Baal, could take that blood and sprinkle the side of the altar. And Elijah is demonstrating, go get bulls and let us sacrifice them. He's demonstrating to the people, you've sinned. You've got to have a blood sacrifice. You're in need of God's forgiveness. If a double-minded person, likely that's us, if a double-minded person is ever going to be able to choose God fully, he or she has to recognize their great need of forgiveness and help. Why did Israel have all these bloody barbaric sacrifices? To the modern mind, they're grotesque. I mean, what went through your mind when I described how they slashed the throats of the bull and collected its blood? We don't like blood. We're modern. That's why a lot of theology that is aberrant and distorted is creeping its way into the church, and they're saying things like, get Christ off the cross. Why do you keep talking about the blood? That happened 2,000 years ago. We live in the righteousness of God. Let's quit talking about sacrifices. Listen, there's a lot of people that teach this. But they don't understand the depths of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve the payment of death. And God himself is the one that said in Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement. What's atonement mean? Just put the hyphens in there. At one meant. If you want to be at one with God and reconciled and holding his hand figuratively in peace, then something, blood has to be shed to make you one with God. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is why Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Listen, sin is such a terrible blight that only the cleansing agent of blood could deal with it. One writer, John Phillips, put it this way, sin is a radical and terrible reality that calls for a radical and terrible cure. Now listen, you have to understand this, and likely this is a bit of a new perspective for most of us. The physical property of blood didn't have the power. Now think through this. All, if it did, all they would have to do is get a little blood out of the animal in a bowl and sprinkle the offer and let the animal live. All Jesus would have had to do is get some pre-modern ancient syringe and draw out a pint and throw it at the altar in the temple. And there we go, God, I've paid for their sins. It's not the physical property of blood that provides atonement. It's the death of an innocent substitute that provides the power in the blood. The shedding of blood, friends, means the death of the innocent victim. This is why the Monday before the Passover every year, devout Jewish fathers would go and select their spotless, unblemished lamb from their herds, the one that they're going to sacrifice on Thursday. And they would take that little lamb and they would bring it into their home like a pet. And the father would often put the lamb on his shoulders and walk around with him 
Because the family was to understand that it's the death of this innocent creature that has to pay for our sins. And when we slit its throat on Thursday, you're to feel this. This is why Jesus lived, or at least partly why he lived for 30 to 33 years, so that he could empathize with us, certainly, but so that we would know him. We would see him through the Gospels. It would pain us when he's hanging on that cross. Sin's penalty is death and nothing but the death of an innocent victim. The shedding of its blood can possibly atone for how horrible sin is. But while animal sacrifice could cleanse the the worshiper, it could not give that worshiper a new heart. It couldn't provide a new nature in that worshiper that was now free from slavery to sin and set free to worship God with a whole heart. They couldn't do it. An animal sacrifice didn't have that kind of power. That's why Hebrews says they were just a shadow. Listen, when the sun peaks over the horizon and the trees, shadow looms large before you and long before you on the ground. That's telling you the sun's about to get up over the horizon and what's about to come up over the landscape of Israel's great need for forgiveness is the Son of God himself, Jesus. And all of those thousands and millions of sacrifices were pointing forward. One of them is going to come and his death, his blood, will be greater than an animal's. For if the sprinkling, Hebrew says, of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself, here he is, innocent substitute, without blemish to God, he'll purify our conscience from dead works and set us free to serve the living God. You've got double-minded Israel, unrepentant Israel. They're gathered on Mount Carmel this day, and they were in need of a new heart set free to serve God that would no longer continue to stray at every new God that came around. And that powers the gospel. The bull, the innocent substitute, must be killed. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who came up over the horizon of Israel's landscape and ours as well, who died to take away our sin and give us a new nature that no longer is a slave to sin, set free to worship, serve, and obey our God. God must set us free from double-mindedness, and he'll do it through the blood of his Son. Notice verse 23. Elijah says, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now why didn't Elijah say that the God who answers by water is the true God? I mean, they're in a three and a half year drought. There's not been even a drop of dew for three and a half years. People are dying. Elijah could have just prayed, couldn't he? God, just answer by water. And when you see water raining down, that's the real God. He didn't do that. Here's why. It's because all Israel was under the judgment of God. That was what the drought was for. That was God's judgment for three and a half years. God's judging them. Why? Because they're double-minded. Why? Because he's a jealous God. He wants full allegiance. He will bring difficulty and trials and judgment to bear to turn their hearts back to him. Now, this is key. They were under the judgment of God. And friends, listen, you've got to understand this about God. If you don't know this, drive it into your theology. God's wrath must fall either on them, all of Israel, or on a sacrificial substitute. He cannot bless them with rain until his justice is satisfied. And that just makes sense. Listen, if you had a loved one get killed, murdered, and they found the murderer, 
and brought that person into the court and the judge is having a great day and wants to get home to his son's birthday party and just says, you know what, you're innocent, go ahead and get out of here, I got things to do. Wouldn't that be a travesty of judgment? Would you not feel cheated? Would you not be angry? Divine justice must be satisfied. Forgiveness, as we've seen, requires the death of an innocent substitute. The wrath of God is either going to fall on Israel or, with his grace and his mercy, a, an innocent substitute called a bull, one day called Jesus. The penalty of the broken law must be inflicted. It's either going to be on the guilty culprit, which was Israel, or upon an innocent Substitute, And as God's wrath was about to pour out on that bull, it would leave room for his kindness to come to Israel. Here's his wrath. Now on the bull, now it leaves room for his kindness to come to Israel. That's always been the way that God's justice works. He is a holy God. He will not give a pass to sin. And because he will not give a pass to sin, and you and I are unable not to sin because we're born with a nature to sin, then he provided the innocent substitute through the Son, Jesus Christ, and poured his wrath upon him, making room for his kindness for us. Friends, that's the good news called the gospel. God's wrath was poured out on his son. That's why at noon on that Friday, the clouds obliterated the sun. It became dark all over that land. It was the darkness representative of the wrath of God. That was the only time that Jesus ever cries out in pain at noon. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden we see again, God cannot be in fellowship with darkness. And it was at that point that he poured onto his son, all of the penalty of our sins. Listen, Father, as you're in the Old Testament, Israel, and you take your lamb or you take your bull and you go to the temple and the priest meets you before you can get into the priest's court. And he'll meet you with that bull or with that lamb and he's going to tell you, put your hands upon the head of that animal that innocent substitute without blemish and transfer yours and your family's sins, what you have done, transfer them to that goat or to that lamb. And after that is finished, the priest is going to give you fathers. This was your right. This was your privilege. The knife, the dagger to reach under its neck and to slit its throat while the priest captures the blood in his bowl. We don't like bloody sacrifices, but there's no forgiveness without it. And he takes that blood that's now captured in that bowl and he passes it up the line of priests all the way to the altar and behind the altar is a little conduit and after they sprinkle some of that blood below the red line that goes around that altar representing the forgiveness, the atonement that has come from the death of that innocent animal, they pour that blood down the conduit which in Jerusalem would pour down into the Kidron Valley and turn that brook red for days. And God at noon, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, takes his hands and he takes all of our sins and transfers them right to the head of Jesus. And God turns his back because he cannot be in fellowship with darkness. His divine wrath must fall and he's chosen to let it fall onto Jesus rather than to us in exchange. Give us his kindness. Friends, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. It brought us peace. Look at the exchange. And with his stripes we are healed. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? Here's the exchange. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All the sins of ours were put on Jesus making room for the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of God to come to us. 
The fire of God's wrath had to fall on that bull before the rain of his favor would come. And when it did, Israel would know the reason for the contest to begin with, that God had accepted their sacrifice. He is making room for his grace and he will bring a new heart to Israel. Don't light that fire. You can't save yourself. You can't add anything into your salvation. It is all of God. God does the impossible. God provides the innocent substitute in himself. God rains his wrath upon that substitute. God gives his kindness to you. There's nothing that you and I have done that contribute to our salvation. Don't light the fire. God alone does the impossible. And it's faith in God alone which saves. Verse 26. So they took the bull, the prophets of Baal that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, from nine o'clock probably till noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice and no one answered. How ironic. It was at noon when God turned away from his son. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. In other words, you've got to cry louder. Baal's hard of hearing. But he is your Lord. He is Elohim, is the word there. So he'll listen to you. you just got to make your voices louder. Either he is musing. He's deep in thought, he's saying. He can't multitask. He's distracted. So cry louder because he's distracted or note the sarcasm or he's relieving himself. He's in the cosmic divine bathroom. He's behind a tree going to the bathroom. Do you know what Elijah's doing? By the way, I have the gift of sarcasm. If there's anything I'm getting right this morning, this is it. I know what he's doing. He's reducing Baal down to human characteristics. Because every idol is created by people, and ironically, they look just like us. God alone has attributes that we don't share. He is forever above us, but not Baal. He's bringing Baal down to the level of humanity. And Elijah mocked them, and he says he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. Remember, Baal died every year. Every spring, Baal dies right after the rainy season. And for six months, Baal is killed by Mote, the death god, goes down into the underworld until his worshipers in a frenzy revive him. And when they revive him because they're giving their money to the prophets of Baal or Asherah, then, then Anat build Baal's cohort consort is sent down to the netherworld the underworld to bring him back and he comes back just in time for the autumn rain every year and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them you see they didn't understand propitiation they didn't understand their blood was defective they didn't understand that it had to be the blood of an innocent substitute that could bring atonement. Their own blood was worthless. Baalism was a hideous religion. Listen, they were the, the prophets of Baal were priests. And they were little more than religious prostitutes. Literally. Listen, you wanted... Baal to bring fertility to you, to bring blessing to you, then go pay money and sleep with their prostitute priests. And if that money comes into Baal's coffers, Baal will send you what you want. The religion held to the belief every piece of ground you owned had its own resident Baal. That's why it was Baalism, plural. There were lots of bales, and there was a bale in every piece of ground, and you've got to pour out your libations. You've got to bring money to bale. You've got to pour out your worship and your devotion, and then bale would make your ground fertile. Then bale would make your wives able to have children. That's how the religion worked. But it gets even worse because the Bible says that the Israelites even fell into offering their children to bale. See, Baal was a bit like Moloch. 
And there were statues, large statues made of Baal. And they had arms outstretched with large platform hands. And in the belly of the statue was a fire that would burn. And the Israelites who were desperate for God to work, for Baal to work, they would come with their firstborn child. And drums would beat and chants would resound and dry, drown out the, the screaming cries of the child. And when the frenzied worship had reached its peak, the baby was placed on those hands. The priests would pull the ropes and the hands would come up and literally roll the baby into the fire. It was called passing through the flames. It's hideous. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish scholar, describes this scene. There's been recovered documents that describe what Baalism worship looks like. Here's what he writes. First rose a wild cry to Baal, followed by a dance around the altar, beginning with swinging motions to and fro. Then the howls became louder and the dance more frantic. They whirled around. They ran wildly through each other's ranks, always keeping up a circular motion, always the head bent low so that their long, disheveled hair swept the ground. And it was noon now, and for hours they had kept up their wild rites. And with cutting taunts and bitter irony, Elijah reminded them that since Baal was God, since Baal was Elohim, then the fault must lie with them. So the, the false prophets stung to madness, became more frantic than ever before, and the wild howls passed into piercing demonic yells. And in their madness, the priests bit their arms, cut themselves with their two-edged swords, which they carried, and with lances. And as the blood began to flow, the frenzy reached its highest pitch when first one and then others commenced to prophesy, moaning and groaning. And then they burst into rhapsodic cries, uttering incoherent, broken sentences. That's what it would have looked like. Listen, it was at noon that Elijah begins to mock them because Baal was called the sun god. It's at the peak of his power. Surely it would be nothing for Baal to light that offering on fire. And Baal was also called the thunder god, and he was often drawn in ancient art with bolts of lightning in his fists. So fire, fire should be nothing for Baal. Friends, can't you picture... Can't you picture Satan behind the scenes of this massive confrontation? So desperately trying to bring fire down upon that pagan altar. Listen, he has the power to do that. He will do that in the end times. This is what Revelation says. He's going to give the beast power to perform great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and deceiving a great many. You know Satan is trying to do this, but holy, sovereign, omnipotent Yahweh is holding him back because he wants his people to return. God would not allow it. And Baal was utterly dead and mute. And God's mercy was still available. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Faith must be, friends, in the right God. You can't have faith put into the wrong God. There's no atonement. There is salvation and no one else acts, says. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you remember the Wizard of Oz? Don't you remember that scene where Dorothy and her friends are afraid of the great and terrible Oz? until the little dog Toto pulls the curtain back and you see the wizard as he really is, just a little old man with a microphone pulling levers. Well, the curtain just got pulled back on Baal. He is a deaf, mute, no God. And as midday passed, verse 29, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation into the evening, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. See, God must first disprove what they were putting their faith in before he will prove his worthiness. 
He's taking his double-minded nation and he is bringing them back to him and he is putting his wrath, he's about to do this, onto an innocent substitute, the bull, to make room for his kindness and his mercy to Israel. It is a foreshadowing of what Jesus has done for us. And it gives you a new nature. It sets you free from the power and the bondage of sin so that you can freely worship and serve God. Are you double-minded? Is your, div- your allegiance divided between God and a God substitute? Listen, friends. God will not put up with it. And neither will he demand that you turn to him without providing the means for you to do it. That is the gospel. Don't leave the cross. Don't forget God's grace. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Let his grace help you walk in it. And put yourself on that altar and let God make something big out of your life. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for what we're going to see when we pick this sermon back up, the other half of this, Lord, when we see how you answered. We're going to see the positive, the positive side of the gospel. We're going to see your love and your power reclaiming your people for yourself to give them single-minded devotion. Father, I pray that you would be with us Help us to be honest. Lord, for some here, maybe they need to come to you and put their faith in you for the first time. Maybe they need to trust you for their salvation. God, I pray that they will. You've done everything that is necessary for our salvation. It's all in Jesus. We don't need a light of fire with good works, church attendance, our efforts. They can't light that fire. It's faith in the right God and the God of Jesus. Lord, there likely are many of us who struggle with divided allegiance, God. We look good here on this day, but Lord, our week, it doesn't look so good. So Lord, I pray that the gospel would be alive. Help us to throw ourselves at the base of that cross. Help us to understand that our substitute, our innocent substitute, Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, took all of your wrath to make room for your kindness for us so that you could set us free from the bondage of sin, free to serve you and to love you. You've given us the power in the cross. The resurrection speaks to it, to live our lives fully for you. Lord, let us lay on that altar and let us follow after you hard with everything we've got because we've been set free by the gospel. We love you, we thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen.